Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Orville Schell. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And just uh, a few days ago, in a meeting in Vienna that lasted for eight hours, uh, over two days, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor and China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, met in what senior U.S. officials are describing as constructive talks that were candid. Now, candid and frank often in used in the diplomatic context often means a little friction. What's your understanding of what went on over those long eight-hour meetings? Well, I think the Biden administration, to its credit, has been seeking to find some way after the uh, balloon incident canceled his uh, his summit uh, to, you know, have some new, new kind of interaction with China. And at last, there seems to be some semblance, at least a willingness to sit down. And we see not only has uh, Sullivan met with uh, Wang Yi, who's China's highest uh, ranking foreign policy uh, official, but uh, Ambassador Nicholas Burns in Beijing uh, met with the foreign minister, Qin Gang, and now John Kerry has even been uh, been uh, given an audience with the climate negotiator uh, in China. So there seems to be a bit of a of a campaign going on on the Chinese side to at least open the doors to some semblance of discourse and talk, which is what the Biden administration has been seeking for months. Well, uh, recently, Secretary of State Blinken. Um uh, met with the Washington Post editorial board, and in the interview, which happened on World Press Freedom Day uh, a couple of weeks ago, he spoke positively about China's 12-point peace plan that they announced in February vis-a-vis Ukraine, said that some of the points were quite useful and could be built upon. So we don't necessarily know what happened in the eight-hour meeting between Wang Yi and Jake Sullivan, but I'm assuming that Ukraine was pretty high on the agenda. What's your sense? I, I think the Ukraine is one reason why the United States is being so solicitous. In fact, some Republicans think uh, it's being too solicitous of China. Uh, for instance, the United States has not yet released the evidence of what was in the balloon that it uh, shot down. Uh, over the Atlantic Ocean that have been drifting over the continental United States, and that they've not done so in order not to antagonize China and to kind of help facilitate the kinds of uh, meetings that recently we've seen taking place. So that's not to say that the evidence that was retrieved from the ocean off South Carolina was either not there or was powerful in terms of indicting China. So are there two possibilities there, or do you think the latter is more likely? I think uh, the the evidence will probably be pretty damning. And the United States has wanted to kind of keep it in abeyance uh, 
in hopes of opening some channels of negotiation because the situation with China and Taiwan, the South China Sea, the East China Sea is quite fraught. And China does seem to react rather hysterically uh, when they're caught red-handed. I mean, uh, going back to the origins of COVID, they certainly overreacted when the Australians suggested some kind of international inquiry. They then slapped them with all kinds of trade sanctions. Well, one of the liabilities of uh, the People's Republic of China, particularly under Xi Jinping, having attained wealth and power, is that uh, it has generated wolf warrior diplomacy, which means that China does not give a little to get a little. It sees yielding compromise as weakness, and it's really not uh, on the agenda. So this makes it very difficult for diplomacy of any any kind to happen. Uh, And I think even now, during uh, Sullivan's meetings with Wang Yi, uh, much of the time was spent with China reiterating its demands that the United States doesn't trim its jib and recognize its folly and come around. There can't be any meaningful dialogue. We'll see how this works out. But there are many other signs that would suggest this is going to be a very heavy lift. But in terms of Ukraine, it would seem sort of logical in a way that if there were to be a peace deal, that it would make sense that China could bring a reluctant Putin to the table and the United States could bring a reluctant Zelensky to the table. Now, I'm sure nothing will happen until after this uh, spring offensive, but still it would seem that both sides could sort of need each other, don't they? Yes, I think you're right. And I think this is in uh, the Biden administration's calculation that it is conceivable that China could be the intermediary. Uh, They haven't done a particularly good job in keeping their neutrality. Uh, They've been kind of hugging it out with Putin. But nonetheless, uh, I think there is that hope. And even Zelensky, I think, recognizes that, that there's a possibility. And uh, I, I think that's fair enough. Nobody wants to see this war go on, and no one wants to see it, things get worse with some nuclear weapons used. But uh, it's very hard for China uh, to actually play the role of a neutral uh, arbiter when it is so demonstrably buddied up with uh, Putin and Russia. Well, we're hearing reports, of course, that the U.S. is continually warning China not to supply arms to Russia to fight in Ukraine. So I don't know whether that is based upon any evidence or that's just a fear on the part of the U.S. What do you think? No, I think the U.S. is uh, making every effort to, to, to warn China in a way that's as unprovocative as possible that this is one of our red lines, just as they have red lines like Taiwan. So, um, but on the other hand, there are all sorts of gray zones uh, whereby weapons do get to to Russia uh, through second parties. And uh, the Chinese are specialists at this. They've been doing it for years with the North Koreans, for instance, shipping oil, trans-shipping oil and things in 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 indirect ways. So it's not as simple as we uh, might hope it would be. Uh, but uh, I think China, China has taken note that this is, this is a really uh, 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 you know, hard issue for the United States. But it's also something that's going to backfire on China with, with Europe, right, where they have massive markets, China being Germany's biggest trading partner, etc. 
and you recently had another display of this wolf warrior diplomacy coming from China's ambassador to France, who basically parroted Putin's line that that uh, Ukraine's not a real country. That upset a lot of Europeans. So does that then lead you to conclude that there's a kind of battle between two lobbies within China, the sort of more militant, uh, military-oriented lobby and the international business lobby? I think that's a, probably a, a fair assumption. The ambassador to France, Lu Chayet, did make this hysterical statement, which got him sort of got his chain yanked. Uh, that Ukraine wasn't a real country. I, I think this sort of does express China's deepest belief, but it's not going to. It shouldn't be saying it in public if it's trying to play a role of a quasi-neutral arbiter to bring peace between Russia and, and the Ukraine. But nonetheless, I think we all we all can can sense that China really is uh, very devoted to the idea of making uh, the world safe for autocracy. And in that regard, Russia's their biggest ally. But what do they want from Russia? I mean, some analysts suggest that they're perfectly happy to be the sort of big brother to a diminished Russia. And in the trip that Xi Jinping took to Moscow, apparently Putin was hoping that the Chinese would finance a new gas pipeline you know, obviously their gas pipelines tend to head west towards Europe, and he want, wanted them to finance a gas pipeline into China, and the Chinese wouldn't play ball. Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, that's just uh, Act One. Uh, you do have to recognize that China uh, gets most of its uh, oil and gas through the Straits of Malacca, through the South China Sea. In other words, it's very vulnerable uh, in those regards and would like nothing better than to have oil and gas pipelines from Russia uh, at, at a very uh, cheap, uh, inexpensive price. So I think Russia is important to them, particularly as we see the formation of alliances all around China. We have AUKUS, the Quad, Five Eyes. We have the Philippines turning. Uh, India is turning and still with some ambiguity, to be sure. So I think it's very important for China to keep some substantial allies, not just Iran and North Korea and Syria and a few oddball countries. And Russia is a, is a country of consequence with tremendous natural resources. But, of course, the bond is largely, as you mentioned, that they're authoritarian states and that they're openly opposed to democracy, at least... Putin pretends to have a democracy, but it's obviously a totally rigged democracy. But Xi Jinping is actually quite hostile to democracy. He speaks out against it at every opportunity. He does. And I think, you know, here is where Russia and China are bound together, not simply by autocracy, but their common currency is that of grievance of being disrespected, disesteemed, looked down upon by the outside Western liberal democratic world. And this is why you have constant, the constant leitmotif in every statement by China that, that we need, that China needs to be, have mutual respect with the United States. And the only problem there is that if you want to be respected, it certainly helps to act respectably. Uh, and that is something where I think uh, uh, we'd have to say China often uh, comes up short. But they do take great umbrage 
at the fact that there is a kind of an, a, a sense that they are a retrograde, backward, authoritarian, Stalinist, Leninist state, and uh, thus do not win the recognition and acceptance of much of the rest of the world. But the evidence, unfortunately, supports that. Look what happened with Hong Kong. The idea of one nation, two systems, nobody's going to buy that anymore, particularly the Taiwanese. So No, you're right, they're not. But nonetheless, they got Taiwan. They got Hong Kong, and they would like to get Taiwan. So we can't discount China. It still has some cards to play. It's still very dynamic economically. Um, there's a lot of codependence on, on supply chains into China uh, by many, many countries, including our own, including Taiwan, for that matter. So it's a very complicated tableau uh, that was formed during the, the heyday of globalization. And now as things become more hostile, the question is, how do you decouple in a way that doesn't completely run the global economic train off the rails? Well, it would seem one of the first things that they could do successfully between the U.S. and China is for China to crack down on the triads and the gangs that send the precursors for fentanyl to Mexico out of Macau and Hong Kong. Yes, you're speaking now like a rational person, and uh, that would certainly help. And there are many things that China could do which would instantly help remedy their situation. Uh, will they do it? Uh, so far, they've shown little inclination to trim their jibs in any way that might uh, uh, win them favor, uh, either in Europe or in the United States or Australia, for that matter, or Canada or even India. So there, there's a, a, a contradiction at work here that's of, of a very sort of stark kind that, again, making these kinds of concessions, I think, to Xi Jinping occur as, an, uh, as a manifestation of weakness rather than a diplomatic acumen. So it's not a subtext then, Orville, that they're paying the West back for the opium wars? I think, you know, there's a very deep, deep historical narrative in China, as in Russia, uh, of uh, the sense of, of both countries having been oppressed uh, colonialized, imperialized, and occupied. Uh, true uh, in many regards, but it's the fact that this narrative of victimization and humiliation continues, even as China is really extraordinarily successful in many, many ways, is a bit of a contradiction because you cannot be a victim at the same time you're a success. And that's built into the Leninist narrative is based on the notion of victimhood and humiliation and predation. Uh, and it's hard to vacate that for them because it's a deep into their bloodstream. And this is Putin's problem, too. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Orville Shell, looking for something positive here, one tends to be the deliverer of doom here with the headlines being such that... Uh, so much is so depressing. I don't know whether you watched Trump at the CNN town hall, but it was a frightening display of the possibility that we could have our own despot uh, who's obviously yeah. completely incompetent, mentally unstable, and a proto-fascist. So we have some serious problems. But So I'm just looking for a little bit of daylight here. It seems that from what Blinken told the Washington Post and 
the eight-hour meeting between China's top diplomat and the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. There's some reason to be optimistic, isn't there? Yes, I do think this is an important and interesting opening. And and it, it, if it was just one robin, it may not mean springtime. But as I said, we see these other openings with the U.S. ambassador, with John Kerry, and there are other signs that China wants to kind of recalibrate a bit. The question is, what will the terms of that recalibration be? And will they actually be able to deliver the kinds of pressure on Russia, which might help uh, resolve the Ukraine invasion? Um, That remains to be seen. And there's not a whole lot of evidence uh, that they are willing to make themselves more temperate. Uh, to which in China now we see the attack on the consulting firms, of the raids on people who do financial due diligence, risk assessment. Uh, I mean, they're one thing after another, which suggests that it's going to be difficult for China to have a major reformation of how it views the outside world, which is, in, in Xi Jinping's estimation, is a fundamentally hostile world, not only opposed to China, but would like to overthrow Xi Jinping himself and the Communist Party, and, and the same with Putin. That's their view. That's the Lenin's view. And he's, he is a, a departure from previous Chinese leaders, uh, Xi Jinping. So he, yes. he himself is a bit of part of the problem, isn't it? You yeah. know, it, you, I first went to China when Mao Zedong was still alive and the Cultural Revolution was still going on. And that whole period of Chinese history was one in where China needed an enemy. And Mao Zedong actually wrote about the necessity to have an enemy uh, to keep yourself tuned up and keep people on your team. And I think we're sort of drifting back into that syndrome again with Xi Jinping, where Everything is a contradiction. Everything is struggle. And he sees the whole world in terms of us and them, of of friends and enemies, not in terms of a fluid situation where he has agency to actually change the circumstances uh, and relations with other countries for the better. He feels acted upon. He feels victimized. And that's a very difficult place uh, for uh, a moment, as we find now with Sullivan and Wang Yi and others, to actually renegotiate a new, a new uh, a kind of a, a balance point between the two countries. Well, Orville Shell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Orville Shell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. He's currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, and his books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La, From the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into a leading champion of democracy and transparency who fought the most powerful interests and won. <laughs> 